0: Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Elizabeth Conjar. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. Let me me introduce Liz. This is Liz Conjar, Elizabeth Conjar, professionally, PhD. Uh, She has 16 years experience in Say it and so there's no way. But she has experience in consulting, data analytics, network analysis, surveys, engagement, employee sentiment, ML work, uh, PhD of George Mason University. She's passionate about uh, data-driven insights to improve the employee working experience and well-being. She's a cat mom. She has a refrigerator in her office, which I'm super jealous of. There are many number ones, but she's the most number one of them all. Welcome, Liz.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. I love the cat mom, uh, in particular.
0: Well, I, I've, I've known both of y'all for quite some time and I think I have like a major life announcement before we start, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming and it's the end of an era. And I think it's time to increase the font size on my computer. I just can't see anymore.
1: <laughs> Should we get you some reading glasses while we're at it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Cole caught me the other day wearing my reading glasses. I was, was absolutely embarrassed.
1: <laughs> I think I'd like to see you in some reading glasses. I, I you know.
0: It, it's time. It's absolutely time. You, It's time to get some intellectual-looking glasses, Scott. You need some, <laughs> the, not just readers, but something that's going to say, I've got an eclectic personality. I, I'm probably a host oh. of a podcast. What would that be, like Oakley's or something?
1: I feel like you need some like I don't know fun, like a fun color or like like the thicker framed like black or like lime green. I think that would be a good
0: yeah. Good I think like a like, like a smoking jacket with like the elbow patch. Just, like, yeah. Uh, are you gonna get a microfraz like, or something like that? Yeah. I don't know how to follow that.
1: Nah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think. That's, well, I think uh,
1: that's it. I think we did our work here. So.
0: And you know, Lizzie, are you going to are you going to sign off?
1: Absolutely. I'm going to PSYOP. Yes, I'll be presenting on Thursday and getting it over with and then chilling out for the rest of PSYOPs.
0: Of well, what are you presenting on? Oh, lucky.
1: We are presenting on hybrid onboarding and how bringing people on remotely as well as in person in some cases, how that sort of changed the landscape of what onboarding employees looks like and you know, how we get people connected more relationally if we're doing more remote onboarding, um, still the impact that we have and have always had really of diverse, um and dispersed, globally dispersed teams. And so I think it should be a really good conversation.
0: Let me guess, the answer is it depends.
1: Doesn't it always depend if
0: a <laughs> an
1: IO psychologist that exists today and that doesn't have that in their vocabulary or consultant or like, you know,
0: it's like the go-to joke of our field. Like it it always gets a laugh, even if it's the hundredth time you've heard it.
1: Absolutely. But it's actually pretty true as <laughs> <That's> well. What... <laughs> Typically. Uh, the world's more complex than we give it credit for, or I like I don't know, Scotty and I were chatting about this the other day, even in our analyses and the reason that we built like network analysis is that it actually takes the social system into account when you're when you're thinking about analytics and corporations and as opposed to just kind of like individual level predictors of something.
0: i've got a question this is nothing to do with what you're talking about liz but it did have to do with <laughs> with what how what you said both you and michael arena when you're on the podcast called scott scotty and no one else i know calls him scotty what what is the thing going on here maybe i don't know if you can fill us in liz or if scott has something to fess up to what what's going on here?
1: Well, I think when he started working um, at Am, you know, at at our company, uh, <laughs> at the big tech company we both work for, uh, he introduced himself as Scotty. It's literally written there, and his name right now, and in, in his um, you know yellow circle on the Zoom screen. So as <laughs> it,
0: it's an it's an inner circle, so like I, I can like you know, have a blast radius around my friends, right? So the close ones call me Scotty. Next out is Scott, and if uh, you just really don't know me, just pick my name up from like HR. It's Matthew, which is my given name. I didn't even know it was Matthew. Matthew. Yeah, here, this is a quick story. So uh, when I was just a junior uh, researcher, I joined a small uh, uh, assessment development company, and it was a three-man research and development uh, department, and all of us were named Scott. So they needed a way to differentiate us from the outside because people just like call and say like I'm, I need Scott and like all this like I don't know who you're talking about. So me being the most junior, I became Scotty. My boss became Scott, and the most senior one became Doc, PhD. Doc. So that's how they differentiate us, and that name just stuck. Scotty just kind of stuck. It's now my email address, everything. Yeah. This is a really funny way to learn that you're not an inner circle person. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, you're you're inside. You're inside. You're something. You're you're like it's like uh, rings of uh, Dante's Inferno. You're just like just, just a slight ring outside, I guess. Well, we can go back to talking about PSYOP. I just wanted to derail us a little bit.
1: I said, are you both presenting at PSYOP as well?
0: Yeah, we we've got a a live podcast with uh, Alexis Fink at PSYOP, which is pretty exciting from from Meta. And then I, I've got—I don't know what other sessions you've got, Scott, but I, I've got another one about people analytics careers uh, with uh, for I/O psychologists with uh, previous guests Tony Ferreras and then a few others: uh, Chris Sarasoli, Hannah Marco Goldstein, Andrew Colmes, and Kristen Sabo. So yes, our, our podcast is going to be on what Saturday at three p.m. I don't think there—I don't think there is a later session than that. There is not. That is factually accurate. <laughs> but have you seen the, uh, the PSYOP trends for 2023? I
1: have. I was just taking a look at those the other day.
0: Here, I'll, I'll give a rundown. I'm curious to y'all's impression of these. So, uh, one, rethinking the employee experience of remote workers. Two, best practices for managing a hybrid workforce. Three, managing the transition into a post-pandemic world, which sounds very similar. Uh, four, ensuring inclusive environments and cultures. Five, talent attraction and retention in a candidate-driven market. Uh, reshaping work to address employees' mental health. Revisiting people's strategies in time of economic uncertainty. Uh, psychological safety in the workplace. Leadership development and coaching. Like, finally, a real core sort of you know, topic. And finally, uh, integrating work life and family. Yeah. I'm on my roof on these, and this isn't just a comment about this year's, is They're always a look back at the previous year, not really a look forward at the following year. Because I think a lot of these things were really hot in 2022, (laughs) but not necessarily what's hot in 2023.
1: I could not agree more with that statement. When I was looking at them, I was like, it is hilarious how fast things change. And I think with the environment that's happening right now, with a lot of, especially tech companies getting rid of employees with us, with a lot of companies saying, hey, there's a return to office mandate. I think we're more in an area where we were in like a candidate driven market and there was lots of job opportunities. Employees were able to make more demands and lots of calls for paying people better and all of those wonderful, great things. And now we're much more in a, a company-oriented space where I'd feel like they're taking the opportunity while there isn't as many jobs out there. Things are more in their favor to return to policies that are good for the organization without perhaps as much care for what their employees might be desiring or without really having to think about like lots of turnover, because right now, at least, you know, if you look at some of the the trends, turnover is going down, so. Well,
0: I mean, that, that's a really interesting take. Uh, I mean, during during the pandemic, we saw this big swing towards sort of uh, emotional well-being, uh, employee-centric sort of practices. And and now now we're seeing, like, perhaps a, a swing in the other direction. So, like, is employee well-being, like, a—is uh, is it going to be here to stay? Or is it, like, a flash-in-the-pan, like, Skrillex? or something like that.
1: I don't know that it never fully goes away, at least from my perspective. I think there's still like groups that were set up or teams that are gonna have this as their as their mandate. But if you think of like organizationally, what are, do the do the policies and procedures sort of follow what employees are saying or not? They're probably gonna be some type of swinging pendulum that is somewhat based on, let's call it macroeconomic factors of what's yeah. going on, Where. Are we swinging more towards where we're in like a candidate employee market? Or are we swinging more towards where companies can make decisions without consideration of that because it doesn't have much impact on their bottom line at the moment?
0: Does Skrillex ever really go away either? <laughs> I should think so. Or they you probably like dubstep, right? Like what? <laughs> it's like listen to like, the devil or something. I don't know. I don't know how people actually did that. But I mean, like, it became EDM. That's all it was all. That's all it happened. It's just evolution. But I mean, like, so so we have these like psyop trends and, you know, a lot of them are employee centric and they, they could be old. What, what, what should it be? Like what, what's coming next? Is it how to get people back into the office now that we are post pandemic or. Oh heck. Like the role of chat GPT and stealing everyone's jobs or, you know, something like that is what I be like really interested in
1: yeah I think you're so I think you're so correct I think that it's maybe the speed and rise of how technology is going to change in shape I'm I'm not one of the big believers that like oh it's going to take over all of our jobs and we're all going to like I don't think that that's true but I do think that it's likely to free up some maybe operational burden where can it speed up things how can it help even SDEs on code writing or you know, having to do like checks of other people's codes. Like there's probably something in there coming up for, for that there's maybe ways that can help speed up different models and modeling predictions that we want to be doing things that require a lot of like manual Q and a work even when we are onboarding people that I think the newer, you know, yeah. language models might be really good at helping us bot sort of way to um, those types of like HR issues and challenges. Um. So I think, like, the rise in tech is one. I still think that we're not talking enough, like, we're talking a lot about return to office now and or still hybrid work. And even before the pandemic, we just weren't talking as much about, like, dispersed work as I thought we should have been. And I still don't think we're talking as much about dispersed teams and work as I think we should be. Because just bringing everybody back to the office, especially if you're in a, a global corporation, well, that doesn't solve the problem of you working with people across the well, you're still in some ways looking at a computer screen and trying to have those conversations and trying to be like globally inclusive. And so just bringing people back to the office doesn't perhaps solve all the problems that you think it does unless you're taking a di- like a dispersed team mm-hmm. workforce lens too.
0: Yeah, I think I think organizational leaders are just really struggling to find historical analog to the current moment. Like it's not the dot-com crash, even though the tech industry is kind of suffering at the moment. It's not 2008, you know, we've never had a period in time with a huge experiment with remote or hybrid type of work in mass. You've also got extremely tight labor markets for frontline level positions and and like, and so as far as I can tell, there's really no historical analog and then layer on things like inflation, and, you know, credit crunches with like SVB and all the other banking crises are going on. It's just a really weird time to try to forecast what are the second and third order consequences of what's going on. And then trying to layer that in as like, okay, how is that impacting workers and the workplace and their well-being? It's super weird. It's a cluster of the highest order for sure. But I mean, like as IOs, like what, what do we do about that? Well, what, what should we focus on to, you know, improve... I guess at the base level, like, the, the role of I.O. is to uh, improve the workers' lives while making the company more efficient. Are there specific skills that we should focus on or aspects of employee experience that drive that more than others?
1: I mean, I'm still a big fan of maybe more pulse serving in particular, trying to figure out, like, the top of mind concerns. And then real-time, I I think the biggest failure, and Scotty, you and I have talked about this before, like the biggest failure of surveys is we usually collect and we analyze the data and we even give out the insights, but the next step to actually take action on the surveys is the, the place where I think that we fail the most often. And sometimes it's because like, well, who's responsible because we have lots of issues and some of those issues require like maybe organizational policy change, but other issues require more hey, manager, we just need you to go and developmental conversations more often or, or something that's more like manager team level focused. And so I need you get the right information to the right people to ensure that those folks are taking action? But I think poll surveys are one way. Like I think it's, you should be keeping a tap on what your employees think is the most important and then telling them why you are addressing something or that you're not addressing it and why you're not addressing it if they think it's important because at least then they know that you listened to them. I also think like looking around corners, like, you know, starting doing research. I, I think one of the areas that IOs in the applied space could get better is like, how do we turn around research faster, quicker, ensure that we're doing it accurately? Because research takes time, but we're not always fast enough to meet the business needs or demands of the business. And so like, how can we take advantage of technology now to speed up what we're doing, ensure its accuracy, but get people Data-driven insights more quickly.
0: Do you do you have any tricks for how to speed up research to doing it at the speed of the business? Perhaps, Liz.
1: Personally, I think like slowing down up front is a, a really good idea. Like doing working sessions or brainstorming, where you try to work out like a lot of the nitty-gritty brainstorming, all the different techniques, all the different issues, challenges, risks you might run into. Because I think a lot of times research gets slowed down when we aren't anticipating risks or challenges that could come up. And so then it's like, oh, this happened and now I've got to go back and redo my analyses or add this in because I didn't think about it. So I think being smarter and taking more time on the front end to truly plan and think everything out and then really executing very quickly to get results back out, either research results or data analytic results, is very helpful.
0: Well, I think like in the past, when I've led people analytics functions, one of the things I always tried to do is if I knew I was going to have to do a research project that was going to take a while, I would try to start working on it before it was really an issue. And uh, so I loved your point earlier about seeing around the corner. It's like, hey, it looks like from the data, we're going to really have a hiring crunch six months from now or a turnover problem six months from now. Let's start on that research now so we know it's going to take a while to do, but so that it'll be ready when the problem starts to arrive.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I think even now, right, so right now we're in a bit of an economic slowdown, but what do we do when the market picks back up? What are are we going to be prepared for that? What types of new roles or jobs are we going to maybe have to go to market really quickly to be hiring for recruiting for. So I think that thinking about what comes next now versus just dealing with the now is a great idea.
0: Well, how, how do you see around those corners though? I mean, like, that's like the great, like the Oracle, right? Like you, you want to know what this sort of thing are. if we all could put our money on the fastest horse, we would. Right. How can we see this? I the
1: mean, I don't know that i've got any like magic crystal ball here for you to tell you but i think embrace from what are what are the most likely scenarios and i think talking to experts talking to experts in the business what do they think is coming down like we can't we can't know all right so how do you find the people that know more about those topic situations than we do uh where do you know can we keep up to date on what's happening outside of the organization what trends people are are moving towards like i think we could have predicted this economic slowdown was going to happen right. months ago, right? Like, looking back, if we look at the data. So how do we look now at certain signals that are going on to, again, try to forecast the, the the most likely outcomes, at least, and then try to plan around
0: those? I love this, like, Bayesian sort of prior thing that you're bringing up here, as far as, like, you know, talk to those folks who so they know and then, like, predict from the past what you're going to see in the future. But like along the same lines of uh getting back to like the idea of like well-being what are some of the trends that we are seeing and uh ways that employees can improve their life whether they're remote or in the office or some sort of hybrid sort of scenario i know you presented on this last year and probably some great insights that are still relevant
1: yeah last year we did a panel on more on like employee belongingness and and um, what belongingness means and where did it sort of fit in? And we had people have different takes that it, it's really a part of id I
0: was just wondering, how do you define belongingness? And and then just to kind of tee up what you were saying with well-being.
1: My take, based on some of the data that I've done, some of the research that I've done at other companies and while I was a consultant, is that belongingness is really bigger than inclusion. It's, it's more of the umbrella factor. And so some of the things that we've seen predict belongingness are not just kind of like how inclusive do you feel on your team or you know do do your values match the company but also like do my skills fit the the role that i'm in so do i belong because like my job is actually a good match for me right now you know do i have the right information to do my job even so some of the like role clarity factors can predict predict belongingness so in addition to some of the inclusion factors and then we've got some like Culture fit or value fit: Does the org care about the same things that that I care about? Do they value if I'm really into the climate change? Are they doing the best that they can on climate change? So it's to me, it's almost like a um, a more umbrella terminology that goes beyond just feeling included as a person or on a team.
0: I've got a follow up question. Just because I was having a conversation the other day with a pretty prominent. D and I B researcher, if you, I don't know what the acronym is in nowadays, <laughs> and I, I asked him a question and, I, and they, they, we had a really good discussion. I'm curious what your perspective is, is where does the responsibility and accountability lie for belongingness? Is it with the individual? Is it with the manager? Is it with the, the person's team or department? Is it the organization's responsibility? And because of those differences in accountability, how do you do organizational initiatives to increase belongingness? Because you're probably going to have a different kind of initiative depending on who's accountable that day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, well, one, I think there's different layers. I mean, I guess you could make some arguments that maybe individuals are in some way accountable for their own belongingness. I think that's probably like maybe the last place I would go. I think the most relevant is probably like team level, maybe up to like an org level for not getting like too big in organization. Once we get too big, then that, that's hard for people to grasp their, you know, their mind around that um, belonging to like a, a super large entity. But I think more at the team manager level, that's really where you can probably best cultivate a feeling of, of belongingness, of role clarity, of growth and development, right? Of well-being. But there are absolutely then organizational systematic factors, right? So on the individual side, I can teach people about setting boundaries, being self-aware, some emotional regulation, all those nice individual things that will help us better manage our work, feel better about our well-being. But on the organizational side, we can start setting better policies of like making sure that people have enough time off or that they don't they have enough sick leave when they're really sick. Or that there's good workload management that is kind of like a cultural factor. Like we all value having um, you know, reprioritized workload. We're not working XYZ number of hours. So if the culture is all about like you should be here 80 hours a week, well then you should expect that you're gonna burn a lot of people out. So so I think there's probably different layers of accountability depending upon like what types of things you're talking about. So organizational systems, organizations are accountable for certain policies, procedures, equity, I think creating like truly what is the top-down cultural factors. And then managers and teams are probably more responsible for some of those like personalized factors. How do we help you like in the moment reprioritize work? How do we help you in the moment if you're not feeling like your voice is being heard, how do we empower those types of things? So I think any of these could have like a systems level perspective, and then you've just really got to define the right actions at each level. And then think about, you know, does your orc care enough to pursue them or not?
0: <laughs> I, I think that's true. It's like layers of an onion. We we've, we've seen some from other, uh, say network analytics professionals, that it's really about those five to 10 people around you that really dictate your employee experience. So if you can get that right, so this like kind of mezzo level that you're referring to, while having this like big umbrella culture factor, I don't know what you describe it, uh, belongingness factor across the organization, that really helps uh, this like top down. While the individual is also responsible for, you have to put yourself out there. You got to be open. You got to be willingness to do all this sort of stuff. So it's like bottoms up factor as well. But, but, Liz, you and I had a conversation like nine months ago, and I just think you're totally wrong. Like, okay. you, told me, you told me that turkey was the most terrible meat <laughs> around. Not and really I, I cannot disagree. I cannot disagree more. You absolutely can disagree. You can't disagree more. Yeah. It's an important distinction. <laughs> I, I, I,
1: it's very true. You cannot disagree Disagree more. I like, I like, personally, I like turkey. I think it should be smothered in gravy when you're eating it. But I do think it's absolutely delicious. So I'm not sure where this
0: i. Uh, I was misinformed.
1: Yeah, of the turkey came from.
0: This is a public walk back of some serious language. Scott was prepping me. He's like, Liz hates turkey. She thinks uh, it's uh, the worst. Uh, 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 I'm, I'm coming into this expecting to have a whole debate about the merits of or demerits of turkey versus other meats. Oh, and now you're like, oh, turkey's fine. And that totally puts a pin in it. Is turkey <laughs> the ultimate straw man? Other
1: Liz that we work with and see if, like, that. The- <laughs> This myth arose from actually from her.
0: Okay. So like my, my, consternation has been in uh, definitely, but it sounds, it sounds like you're like a Thanksgiving Turkey sort of person, like a, That's on true. a plate with gravy, this sort of deal deal.
1: Yeah. I, I'm a very big fan of Thanksgiving. So, so my birthday happens around Thanksgiving. So I'm just a fan of,
0: Oh, you got the like, same. Oh, sorry.
1: I mean, there's pies, there's cake, there's delicious turkey and stuffing and gravy and mashed potatoes and just makes me very happy. There's no gifts that get given except to me. And so, (laughs) pretty amazing holiday. Just, you know, throwing that out there.
0: Well, let's reframe the question then a little bit, because this is actually how it came up. And I'd love to know your answer to this, Liz. What, if you had to rank order, what are the best to worst meats to include in fajitas? I've never had a turkey fajita, so I don't know where that stacks up, but like, what's your favorite fajita go-to addition, and what's your least favorite fajita go-to addition?
1: Chicken would be my top.
0: Oh, oh so wrong.
1: No, chicken. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Steak, meat, beef. That would probably be next. And then, um, I mean, anything like like fish tacos, fish. Any, I don't like fish, so any of that would be my bottom choices. If you put fish, I've never seen fish fajitas, but...
0: I think shrimp is number one, followed by beef, chicken. I I wish there was turkey. Turkey sounds delicious in a fajita. The the worst is vegetable-only fajita. Like, who wants that, right? I would eat that. I mean, I I would eat it, too. I mean, you sit there and, like, you eat it at the table, like, when all the beef's gone. (laughs) But I'm definitely going beef, shrimp, chicken, bell peppers, and whoever the weird person who's eating fish on fajitas like, that's, that's typically <laughs> the last place. You've had a turkey leg?
1: Yeah. The Renaissance Fair is a big thing in Pennsylvania, where I am from. So, absolutely, I've had.
0: Turkey legs are so much better in theory than in practice. When you're eating them, like, for real, <laughs> they're actually really nasty. But they look cool. And it, it, you do feel kind of like a caveman or something if you're eating it. you want to step into the nerdery? Let's do some nerdery. What you got to do today, Scott? Let's start out with the cost of new ideas. Idea generators become less satisfied. So it's a really interesting experiment. So they conducted five overall experiments, and they found that people that are generating ideas become less satisfied with the topic uh, that they're asked to generate about. So uh, they were asked, in one experiment, they were asked to uh, generate ideas about restaurants in their area that don't currently exist. And they became less satisfied with the local choices that were available, even so much that some of them even said that they don't even want to eat at their local restaurants anymore. And overall, more ideation leads to less satisfaction with the status quo. And did the, the authors essentially say that this may be a way uh, to improve when organizations ask employees to brainstorm, uh, because you know the more you brainstorm, the less satisfied you become with the organization. Well, I had two thoughts when I when I came across this, Scott. One is like everyone I mean, everyone's probably heard the adage like if you want to be happier, just lower your expectations. Right. <laughs> and so I feel like by framing it the way the researchers did, it's just it extremely like raising people's expectations and therefore lowering their satisfaction with the status quo. But the other thing and, and this is from my research that I've done in the past using surveys, they framed one of the questions like, what could you do differently? Well, the what could you do differently question typically on a survey is the how can we actually improve, like, "What? why are you dissatisfied question? And so it is sort of framed from a dissatisfaction lens rather than a satisfaction lens. And we all know from, like, two-factor theory, satisfaction, and dissatisfaction are actually distinct concepts from one another. So I think they may have kind of biased their result just based on how they framed the question. H- how would you improve on satisfaction though? Like, I- I'm satisfied. Where-, where would that lead to improvements?
1: Well, I think if you were asking about improvement to you are priding them to think about things being, uh,
0: may- okay.
1: right? So I I agree with Cole's take here on like how things were asked and and there's also a jump, I think, between between this, the takeaway and what type of brainstorming might happen in organizations <laughs> and other factors here, like how much do we care about this thing to begin with? Is this something we've been championing for years or do I have little kind of like knowledge expertise and the thing that I'm brainstorming? So I don't know. Yeah. I feel like we were, we were missing some other factors to get to the conclusive takeaway that they left
0: us with. Have y'all ever heard the term uh, bike shedding? No. So it's, uh, I don't know, parable or idea, what what have you. So the, the, the general thought goes, I'll be very quick, they're building a nuclear reactor, right? Very complicated sort of thing. Um, next to it, they're building a bike shed where, you know, people can like put their bikes in the thing and uh, they make a presentation and they say like, okay, we got our uh, nuclear reactor, we got our bike shed, and people start focusing on that bike shed, be like, well, maybe we should paint that thing green, maybe just put it blue, we're going to put bike locks in there, you know, is it going to be free, is it going to be free access? And the general idea is that people will comment on the things that they're aware of. Like, that the nuclear reactor is so complex, despite the fact that it's though it should be the focus, they can comment on the things that they are aware of and have an opinion about. Oh, absolutely. When I think, I would, coming back to kind of the original point that the authors make about the like idea generators being more dissatisfied, it makes me think of that George Bernard Shaw quote, The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on unreasonable men. And obviously, it could be women, too. But I think the point of it is the idea generators probably are the ones trying to change the world. But they're also probably dissatisfied most of the time because when you're trying to change the world, that's a long process. And oftentimes, it doesn't work either.
1: Yeah, I also think that this. I didn't read the full article, so I don't know if they talked about it. But uh, I, did, eh? I was curious. I was curious. Love it! Yay! I was curious yeah. about state, Like, how long does the effect last? Because also, yeah, like if I get an employee survey and somebody asks me, top of what's top of mind, what could be improved here? Like, yeah, maybe I kind of work myself up into a current state of like, well, okay, I got. I've got this complaint, I've got this complaint. And some of the most, you know, what we find is some of the most engaged employees will also all, also be some of the highest complainers because they're very motivated to help fix things at the organization yeah. that they care about. And so it's not, it's not unrelated, I think, to be, for that to be a state, but then I could go back to my work and be like, cool, I'm gonna work on this really cool project. And now I'm in a slow, happy state again of, What's going on in my organizational world and so i do also think it's about like what's happening in the moment what were you being asked the frame of mind that you're being asked and how long would this type of effect like actually would it be persistent or not
0: yeah i think that's right no i think it's also like a microcosm of like what we see in social media so people get involved in these discussions and like the the world isn't perfect We, we, we know this and perhaps they even get involved in certain groups they point out flaws and then you start ideating on it even more and then you get involved in this like echo chamber where that other side that they're just not doing it right and like how could they they be so wrong at this point either way and to your point like if you were to step away from that sort of system you may calm down but we see it kind of spinning up spinning up spinning up into this lack of satisfaction overall yeah that's that's definitely a phenomena that it's happening all too frequently in society. I do want to come back to one thing you were saying, Liz, because I think it's a really good point about you know, like sometimes disengaged employees. Like, what what's actually the root cause? Is it because they actually want things to improve, and therefore, if over a long enough period of time they got disengaged because they were actually trying to actively make a difference, or are they just plain disengaged because you know they're not feeling it that day or that month? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I, at least some of the, you know, as a past, like, engagement survey consultants, the, some of the things that we noticed was you usually got, like, the most complaints you got were from either, like, very disengaged employees who just really kind of wanted to go off on you, and there there were different types of things that they would talk or complain about, usually much more, like, comp benefit, like, some more foundational kind of things, and then there were very engaged employees who were also passionately complaining about particular things, about the way work was being done or the ideas that the company was pursuing. And they usually weren't talking exactly about the same things, but they were both arguing, like arguing their complaints very passionately. And so I think like, and then you kind of had maybe some of your middle, and we also had a, let's call it like a disengaged population who's like, I don't care, so I'm not gonna answer your survey. Like, you know, yeah. response population. You can also track that with some like sense of lack of disengagement, like used to respond to surveys, used to give me feedback. Now it's just kind of like, I don't, I don't really, I don't care anymore. So like, I'm not doing anything extra for you at the moment.
0: What do you think about this notion? This is something I've done a little research on in the past, but I I think it's just a really interesting point, which is like the light switch moment where a highly engaged person. Like, it seems like from what you're saying, a highly engaged person is actually closer to an extremely disengaged person, depending on the context, than they are to just like a moderately, you know, engaged person almost. Is there like a light switch moment where if you don't, you know, head off their complaints or fix their environment or fix some of the circumstances quickly enough, they automatically flip from being highly engaged to highly disengaged?
1: I don't like, I think maybe some of the behavior can be the same. So that like some of the outcome in terms of like wanting to share things that bother them and the highly engaged person wants to share more so to, because they actually care about making improvements in the organization. And typically a disengaged person wants to share because they kind of want to let you know how mad they are, how unfair something feels, or it's more of an inequity. So. The behavior, while it can, like, I guess, maybe surface level look the same. I wouldn't say it's coming from the same place of motivation. I actually think like not addressing complaints. I think it's better if you're telling people why you're not addressing complaints, but I think more likely why engaged people become disengaged usually has more to do kind of with stress and burnout or, um, overbearing workloads. Like I'm really running fast and like getting all this done. I'm super like engaged and not anticipating soon enough how how much this is wearing them out. And then all of a sudden we're in like, we're in depersonalization and, and we're not feeling good about the people that we're working with. And then, you know, we're kind of taking a step back and everything is feeling really stressful. So I think that's more of maybe like something that might feel like kind of light switchy about, oh, I was really like, I was killing it last week. And all of a sudden this week, it's like, I can't stand to be on readings. I, but actually it's because you were, you were losing the kind of, you know, power to run quickly well before that. And you didn't, you didn't, there wasn't a, an awareness there to kind of pump the brakes and, and, and build in brakes and do better boundaries. And so now you've like exhausted your tanks.
0: That makes sense. <laughs> I just think um, in terms of those folks who were doing this type of research out there, and, and I think this is just building on what you were saying earlier Liz is one of the most interesting populations if you've got time over time data or longitudinal data is who are the highly engaged people that moved to being extremely disengaged and like what's your ratio yeah. uh, and is that changing over time that can be a really key indicator on organizational health or, or departmental health or things like that if you kind of create a heat map in the organization and the, the idea of a taxonomy of engagement is also really appealing because like you do have this like, sort of light switch moment of individuals that perhaps their manager yelled at them you know or like a co-worker upset them in some way or you could have this like slow sort of burnout factor that uh was asking about uh earlier and mentioned about earlier it's also many organizations only conduct these engagement surveys at one point in time right so you get once a year engagement data and it's very state-based in this way so how accurate is it
1: no that's absolutely true i mean if you you know, if you could be collecting that data quarterly, or at least even bi-yearly you'd be able to sort of track the differences because you're probably getting both effects, right? You're getting people who were engaged have now fallen into like a disengagement category. And you're probably getting some people who were disengaged who have somehow figured to pick themselves uh-huh. up and, and tracking both of those and seeing... In some ways, if there were ways to follow up on like what happened there, what was going on, what were the strategies used, what were the particular drivers in your organization? Because not every organization obviously is working the same way. And so the drivers of what is causing or maybe like the typical or most likely drivers of what is causing disengagement aren't going to be the same. So it's good to do that research okay. organization as opposed to just like, you know, guess based on what Gallup is showing at their, you know, their current... <laughs> Of their current biggest engagement trend surveys.
0: Maybe this is a good point to move on to our next article, called "The Death of a Technical Skill," which I think is very relevant to something Scott was talking about earlier with ChatGPT and all of the generative AI that's coming into the world. We're seeing lots and lots of people make prognostications that it's going to take all of our jobs oh, we're all it's set, everything's ending and what the, these authors did obviously this was before the advent of chad gbt but they looked at previous times in history when a skill became obsolete and what they did is they were saying what happened to people who had that skill and did they lose their jobs did their income go down what what actually happened in, what they found, they took one particular case study, which was the decline of the use of Flash, like Adobe Flash. Um, so again, this might not translate to every other finding out there, but in this case, what they found is once the adoption of Flash by like key tech platforms diminished, people who had that skill but had additional skills just really focused their development into those additional skills and therefore very few of them actually lost their jobs and very few of them had their wages decrease because they just reapplied themselves to the area where their focus could continue to make you know profitable things. In, this. in that case, in the article, I think it was like Linux and Python and a few other types of skills. I can't remember all of them, but I think this is really relevant to what's going on at the moment. Is like, are we all going to lose our jobs? It's probably not. I mean, maybe some people will, but it's likely going to be the aspects of the job some of which are going to decrease in nature because of what's going on with automation and AI can do it better than a human being, but that's only going to increase the need for other aspects of the job that, you know, an AI might not be best applied for. What what are your all thoughts on this?
1: I fully, yeah, I fully agree with you on that. I think that there's, well, you know, first of all, you when I first read this article, I was like, well, none of us come with just like one, skill, right? Like I'm sure that people (laughs) maybe were consulting solely on flash, but they, they still had lots of other, right? Like their consulting capability, their coach, the way that they coach or, um, their ability to develop like training platforms. And maybe they had already had not just flash, but were teaching on things too. And, and so anyways, I, I feel like it was very interesting to sort of like, oh, we're going to focus on, but I think that that's, what's probably going to happen. There are certain types of behaviors or certain types of work task activities that become less in our everyday jobs. And that will free up, I think it will free up time um, for us to take on like the more complex, overly thinking, how we put all these puzzle pieces together as opposed to maybe some more of the like manual, burdensome, repeatable things that an AI could obviously do better than we probably would do. Um, We're much more prone to mistakes when we're doing something over and over over again than a computer would be. (laughs)
0: Friend of the Vod Jackson Roach had like a really interesting uh, post on LinkedIn about this. Essentially, like, are we going to be taken over by you know the robot overlords? Uh, and I, I think that this discussion may sound like really silly 12 months from now, looking back, because none of us really know. But uh, overall, I think this like really highlights the role or the the skill ability whatever you call it of adaptability It's become increasingly valuable moving forward. We see it coming up and up again and again that, you know, the world's moving faster and faster and you can't put all your eggs into one basket the way you could several years ago. Like I, I used to only know how to type. That was a skill, <laughs> you know, and now you need to be able to do all sorts of different tasks to be relevant and uh, even just function society. Can I speak the other side of my own argument that I made for a second? I think there's a rightful fear also in this moment. And I think that's why you've seen like there's this yeah, absolutely. letter that's getting a bunch of publicity signed by Elon Musk and a bunch of other famous people saying, you know, GPT-4, we need to pause right after that because if we automatically launch GPT-5 in six months, we're all, you know, screwed or something. I don't know exactly what it says. But yeah, my huh. point is, the death of technical a uh, technical skill is only implying that one skill is going away all at once what if there are multiple skills or what if there's a majority of a person's skills that are being automated all at once? And what if organizations are not feeling so magnanimous that they want people to have more free time, they just want to say, hey, we're just going to cut these jobs. So I, I, I don't know, like like it, we, we mentioned, I think on the last podcast or maybe two podcasts ago that ChatGPT made certain professions 50% more productive. And I made the comment that, that essentially makes it seem like you have twice as many workers as you had before. What if organizations say, "Okay, well now that we have twice as many workers as before, we only need half of the workers that we had to do these jobs." So it's not all jobs going away, but it's just a few of them. I don't, how do you all react to that?
1: So I, I just want to make a comment um, for reacting specifically to that on like this emotional component. I do think that there is this like uh fear overwhelmingness that also just needs to be talked about and dealt with because that in of itself could be a detractor to you feeling motivated and engaged you're doing things about your work if you're like well oh yeah gonna come in and take it from me anyways
0: (laughs) well can can you lean into that a little bit more loose because i i feel like this is an under talked about point of like 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 people Often use the concept of like change fatigue. Oh, there's so much change fatigue. Things, but change is accelerating even faster. And and this is not just organizational shifts. Like oh yeah, we're going to change our culture. This is like technol technological shifts. So what should we be listening more? Should we be more empathetic? Like what what should we be doing to to be conscious of this fear?
1: Well, I think we should be. I hate to say like more self-aware, but I do think that we should be aware of our own uh, emotions around what's happening. In this space and honestly all workspaces, I think um, there's a lot of like emotional contagion that gets passed on in workplaces when, you know, say your manager walks in, no context, they're having an off day because of a meeting that happened before this, but now you're in a meeting with them and thinking like, oh my God, did I do something? Did I deliver something wrong? Because, you know, so, like even us being aware and kind of calling that out or, you know, thinking like, oh, I'm I'm having a bad day or like, Hey guys, I've been thinking a lot about this, should we talk about like what's going on in the, in the tech space and how that might change our field of work? Like you can start having these conversations and start addressing employee concerns if they do have them. Ultimately though, like I think large corporations and systems move at the pace that they move at, not that they're not trying to move faster right now. I think a lot of, you know, at least tech companies are probably trying to move fast, like on getting on the forefront of generative AI at the moment, but like on the integration of that and it taking over people's jobs, like that's still decisions being made by humans with their own comfort, right? So if they've got these fears, they'll probably themselves be slowing the processes down to, to try to address like, oh, how much do we trust? these things, are they usable? Or are they going to get us into hopefully people are talking about the business risk they could get into if it is giving you inaccurate information, right? So yeah, I think there's there's more than one thing to think about and address.
0: That's sort of similar, that notion of like people being skeptical of what's going on. I, I recently saw this LinkedIn post from a guy named Vin ba- Bashista, I think is how you pronounce it. And he, he's saying something along the lines of like new technologies and data they scare useless parts of the business that leach resources and don't produce any value. And so he he basically, he has this whole post about it, and I'll link it in the show notes, but the last part of it is when it's like, when you're asked to fix the data, it's often a plea for help to keep their lack of ROI a secret. So perhaps some of this fear or the feeling of inadequacy or whatever it may be, maybe it's just people's Either conscious or unconscious awareness that maybe they're not actually adding a lot of value to the business already.
1: I think it could be many factors, so that could be one thing. I think it's like, do I have to go learn something new now again? Like overwhelm workness of, of some of these things. I think fear, you know, of losing jobs or jobs being cut when that's already happening in lots of spaces right now. So that's probably heightened by hearing about some of these new technologies. So my guess is that there's Lots of big feelings and, and lots of concerns. And I think one of them could be, yeah, where, where are we highlighting parts of the business that aren't going to be as, as useful anymore, where a lot more of the job. And so what parts of those job skills can you carry over? Can you, you know, now become an organization on how to best use something like ChatGPT to answer questions or, you know, drive new fun products? internal to organizations or so yeah
0: i, I think that's apt when chat GPT or you know any other sort of generative technology is only the tool like it's like the, the internet is a tool but that's not the business say like amazon or pets.com or any of these sort of things that came out was the business that came out of it i saw someone talking about uh, the birth of the refrigerator that's a great instrument but coca-cola is the company that came out of it so while some jobs are going to go away, we're going to see this like blossoming of new jobs as well. Sue Lamb, previous friend of the podcast, works at Coca-Cola, so big Coca-Cola drinkers here. I don't think anyone works at Pets.com anymore. It's quite <laughs> antiquated reference. We're going to switch gears here slightly. Uh, well, quite a bit. Uh, I don't know how the hell they got this to IRB, but... The study finds that people avoid high levels of cognitive ability to the point where they would rather take pain. So they, they put these people into a laboratory setting. They give them either a, a working memory sort of puzzle or it's like this like heat sensor or you know heat gun, something thing that they put on their forearm. And people reliably chose to take the pain over exercising their cognitive judgment. Uh, wild, wild sort of study. And I've I've kinda seen this in the past where some people have just don't have an appetite to read or think a lot of times.
1: I actually think that's directly related. You said we're going to like wildly switch, but I was like, oh, well, thinking about some of these technologies, <laughs> like this might be where some of the fear is coming from, right? Like the overwhelm of like, oh, I better go think and learn and do something on our new. Oh, you
0: know, interesting.
1: Like on our new tech. So I was like, oh, I actually thought that these, you know, these were related to each other.
0: So people, people would rather use an electric shock than learn how to use ChatGPT. <laughs> I think that might be <laughs> And like the, the study does does get kind of like confusing the, the way they talk about it later on. They like you have this like main effect, but uh, the higher level of the pain, you do choose to override it with your cognitive. You'd rather choose the uh, cognitively taxing task. I I don't know how applicable this is to an organization, but perhaps like Liz and I've talked in the past about just throwing money at things, and that that could be like the equivalent of pain in your personal life, right? So I'd rather just throw money at tasks rather than like think about it. I think I'm on my taxes right now. I'm like pay a CPA to just-
1: Yeah. If that if it's something I don't enjoy doing, I would love like that's my way I solve problems too. I just throw money at the <laughs> <laughs> the problem if I can. Um, you know, versus like thinking or having to do something very unenjoyable. Un- un- enjoyable. I was with this one too, I was also thinking about okay, what's the context and what is it that we're asking people yeah. to do? Do they care or do they not care? You know, because in some ways too, we also know that, that you know, if we put people on very boring jobs, they're not likely to stay and do those jobs for a long period of time. So at some level, we like cognitive, low cognitive challenge. We don't like too much, but we also don't like too little. It's the like Goldilocks of work engagement.
0: <laughs> well, I love this too, because it like that point about do people care, right? Like, Task that someone cares about that could be mundane, like leveling up in a video game. It's like the most mundane thing ever, but people care about it, so they'll be engaged at it for hours and hours and hours. Where if it's mundane but people don't care about it, like school or learning statistics, um, you know, people are, are I guess, are rightfully a little abrasive towards it. So I think I think you really hit on something there, Liz.
1: Yeah, Definitely. I, I could just say that I really like
0: learning statistics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: one of those like, weird weirdos in the class.
0: It's it's, uh, uh, it's person specific. So you got motivation, high motivation. I, uh,
1: yeah, though, there's a person aspect to this. And then, whatever the topic is that you're asking somebody to take on, like, are we asking regular, everyday people about quantum physics? Well, maybe I don't want to think about that either. Right. Here for me to take 20 seconds of like a shock. <laughs>
0: you would be impression like it's like a, a kid who got gets in trouble and like parents give them the choice like uh you can either like sit and time out for you know a week or like you can get your whooping right now and just be done with it like i know you just be done with it i'll take the pain that's definitely uh when Ch- scott was growing up type of problem <laughs> i don't know do kids get spanked anymore i don't know I think the new so. thing yeah <laughs>
1: But I do, I think there is something to the, like, what, what seems quicker and easier versus, like, what generally seems more tasking. And if it is more tasking, either cognitively or physically, you're probably only going to oh. engage in it if it's motivating to you, right? Like, if it's something you like or, you know, feel called for. So I always want to be like a I think I'm always um, challenging on, like, what's the mediating factors here? What's the things that they didn't talk about or control for,
0: you know? All of us know, like, very complex things that based on our background. It, this study was just that we wouldn't do that without other any intermediate factors. There's no perfect research study out sure. there. There's always we, we could always control it for one more thing. You know, we always could have lumped in one more independent variable. I just I feel the name the urge that we like need to rename the podcast with full and Scotty not Cole and Scott. <laughs> um, so I feel more included or I feel like belongingness <laughs> in, in the podcast. I hope your well being was not affected. <laughs> in fact, oh yeah, absolutely, Liz, you've been amazing and it has been really good to meet you. Uh, before I can give you the final word, any any parting thoughts, Scott, Scotty, Scotty. <laughs> Liz, uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. How I- can folks get in con- contact with you if they want to reach out?
1: Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn at Elizabeth Conjar, uh, C-O-N-J-R, if they want to say hi and-, and connect with me. And if you're coming to up, I'll-, I'll have the purple hair, so come say hi to me.
0: Yeah, <laughs> miss it. But, um, Liz, you've been amazing. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, you've been listening to Direction Incorrect, uh People Alex podcast with Cole and Scotty. And Liz Conjure. Thanks for joining us, Liz.
1: Thank you guys. Have a great afternoon.
0: As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.